Kilda, and welcome to the Circuit Podcast with me, your host, Robbie Hancock. I'm joined here today with Sione Falito, a multidisciplinary artist born in Tamaki Makoto with Tongan heritage, and is currently undertaking his PhD at Elam, exploring Tongan masculinity. Recent work includes work with object space, totai, and the light ship, which have seen Siona use kupesi or pattern digitally to explore sound and environment. Siona, welcome and thanks for joining me. Oh, thanks, Harvey. Thank you, Circuit. Yeah, it's good to be here. I was just thinking maybe we can start with discussing the significance of kupesi in your practice and also to Tongan culture. Yeah, to start off with the significance of Especially to the Tongan culture, it's real special and real meaningful for a lot of Tongans because it, it adorns our tapa, one of the materials of our culture, one of the prestigious materials, which is tapa cloth made by the women. And so we have natu tapa cloth with kupesi on it and it has different meanings and different symbols. And for myself personally, I've grown up and been around kupesi and been around natu and all that stuff. But it wasn't until I got to art school and I guess when I got a bit older, I started to dig deeper and understand more about the symbols and the context and the histories behind the patterns that are used. Yes, yeah, so for myself, my exploration of Kupesi happened over COVID in 2020. Yeah, I started moving into a, a much more digital um, way of working, it's predominantly before digital, I was an installation, a sculptural and performance artist. I guess I could say I'm still in the infancy of my digital practice, but it's been a place of discovery. And so I've kind of rediscovered or remade a kupesi from the traditional materials that it's made in, which is the different parts of the coconut, sennit and fibers. And I kind of moved it into this trajectory of digital sound and I generate and I create my kubesi through these these means or materials or frequencies. It's, it's a real strong thing for myself. When I see kubesi, I can identify and I can, I guess, relate and have more appreciation for it now. Back then, when I was just like looking at kubesi on natu and stuff, it seemed just like these pretty patterns and, and things on, on, on these, um, these materials. I'm curious when you say they involves coconut and fiber, is that the coconut is used for tapa or is it used to make pigment? So kupesi means patterns. So originally kupesi is, it's a stencil or a rubbing board. And this goes, the tapa cloth goes over the stencil. A dye is used to kind of emboss or bring out the, the, the stencil. And the woman used pigment or ink or, uh, was, I forgot the name, or tsintongan. But it's like a much more darker pigment and then that goes over the top to bring out the patterns a bit more. Part of why I asked, well, I was born in the Philippines and I spent some time living. Our family had a coconut farm there. And my mum always talks about her experience with traditional practices, which even in her generation, heaps of it was lost and largely through sort of Spanish colonization and the introduction of Catholicism, we kind of lose heaps of traditional practices. And there was heaps of, like, I think mum's family had some of those practices, but they weren't super, um, they, they were already sort of old school by the time mum was around. She tells me the story of when she was younger, wanting to learn weaving with 
like the other women and her mum sort of saying, no, everyone knows how to weave here. You go to school and you learn how to read and write. No, not everyone knows how to do that. Mm. <laughs> um, now sort of, you know, living in Aotearoa um, and looking back and I think she still has that kind of feeling of longing of wanting to sort of engage with those practices. Which, yeah, um, interestingly, parts of your practice remind me of Sione Monu as well and that engagement of Tongan craft. Sione's works with flower design or Nimamea Tuikakala. Am I saying that right? Mm. Yeah, Tuikakala, yeah, yeah. Tuikakala. He speaks about a sort of similar thing of seeing this practice unfold and seeing this sort of craft being done and wanting to participate, but his, you know, not being able to because he was a small Tongan boy and, you know, it's yeah, yeah. women's work. It is, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I find it interesting in your show at, or your work with the light ship, you talk about Sisi and garlands, which also involves flower arrangement, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The way that I sort of interpreted that was using Capesi as adornment for its location. Am I right? Yeah. 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 I feel like I share the same sentiment as uh, Sionimonu. And shout out to Sionimonu. Man, I love that guy's work. Eh? I love her work. I've always been intrigued with, with the clouds that uh, Sione makes. And hopefully one day I'll um, I'll grab a piece of them. But yeah, that whole uh, kind of flower arrangement thing, I was thinking about how in Tongan culture, when we present things to someone of importance or prestige and, and stuff like that, we, we adorn them with flowers and stuff like that. And the way that the sisi or the sisi kakala is like kind of arranged, it's, it's like a, in a special way. And I kind of thought about the way that Kupesi adorns the ngatu and stuff like that. And I thought of adorning, I guess, the Auckland CBD or the surrounding area um, or the light ship and that kind of uh, idea, that metaphor of a uh, city speak. Yeah, there's a lot of airs and meaning into Tongan words and stuff like that. But yeah, I'll, I'll get into that more of it later or something. <laughs> yeah, cool. yeah, thinking about sort of Sione and recently I had a conversation with Wai Ching Chan and Tessa Maunga who have a show currently on at the physics room which explores Chinese not making craft and mythology and China's relationship with Aotearoa more broadly. One of the interesting things that we sort of talked about was this relationship to people who live in various diasporas with tradition and the idea of a homeland. Yeah, I wonder what that's like for you. I think, yeah, because, yeah, Tongan heritage is a really important and sort of driving aspect of your practice. What's that like sort of making Tongan work outside of Tonga? And if you can't, yeah, yeah. it'll be an audio recording, so that's Tongan work with um, air quotes. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man, that's that's such a interesting question and um, concept. And I've, I've always thought about these things. I engage in conversations with many of my peers around this kind of idea and there's this thing around New Zealand-born Tongans practice the culture a bit more than the Tongans born in Tonga. So we, the, the, I guess the, the disconnect to Tonga, the homeland, we kind of practice our culture more so we can retain that. I think it's like a fish doesn't know it's in water until it's like taken out. 
And, you know, like when a fish is in water, it doesn't know it's in water until it's like <laughs> that sort of thing. Uh, that's how I kind of view it. Like, but yeah, I guess like us New Zealand born Tongans, we kind of find things within our culture to to retain ourselves or I guess to retain of identity to Tonga. And I find that in Kopesi and I guess I find that in, in, a, in a different scope of how I'm creating that art form, but I'm, I'm still basing or I'm rooting that within this traditional way of thinking, but it's kind of just being pushed in a more modern way. But I feel like it's myself, I still root that in, the, in that traditional way of thinking. Yeah. Yeah, that's funny that uh, a similar similar thing came up in that conversation with with Tessa and why with immigrant families when your parents leave their country or go wherever the kind of culture that you experience was the one that your parents left with so quite often it is something a generation removed or is yeah. that your parents practice which would look a lot different to say people your age still in Tonga you know yeah that's true you have two upcoming projects that I'd like to talk about specifically one of them is you have an upcoming work for Circuits Mason Screens in Te Whanganui a lot of your work is site specific in that audio is an intrinsic part of it I know again for the lightship work you used field recordings from the harbour to inform the video work that's a part of it. And you're doing a similar approach with the Mason screens, am I right? Yeah, that's right. I, I could say this is a collaboration between me and Mark. I asked Mark if he could um, capture some some sound or audio recordings uh, in the surrounding area of Mason screen. And uh, if he could send that to me and I could um, see what I could do with those uh, sound. Yeah, so he sent that through and just kind of going off Google images and I guess maybe videos that I find of the surrounding area of, of is it a street, Mason Street or something? It's this weird kind of pathway where it's up some stairs. It kind of, I, I, I think it's like two streets connected by a steep set of stairs. And in the middle of those, of, of that staircase is, is the screen. So it yeah, is yeah. Off, it's just off Lambton Quay. So there's like a really busy corporate area. Yeah. For myself, was just like trying to imagine that that place. I haven't been to the place. I've only Googled it and seen previous artists' work and stuff like that around the area. Yeah, so from the field recordings that uh, Mark sent me, I'm just going off like what I've, what I've been researching about the area and stuff like that. Yeah, just trying to inform or just create my video work for the area site-specific. And I named the piece Kupesi or Mason Screen which means uh, patterns of mason screen. And so, yeah, it's, it's real site-specific to that landmark. Yeah, I was just trying to imagine things and yeah, just trying to create something from those two senses, I guess, so to speak. Like, I've never been to the place, but yeah, I'm trying to create something for it. I think there's like some, something interesting around conjuring things up like that and just going off on market that day and uh, kind of gave me an over of what the, what the area is like and and stuff like that and i think that's like an interesting thing where you can i think there's like a saying or something like when one of your senses goes down the others are heightened and i i think i tapped into this whole thing around audio and listening and um yeah for myself it was an interesting project because like 
usually when, when I'm doing my site research or field recordings, I'm actually in the area feeling the atmosphere and listening and, you know, being in the space. Whereas this one is like far detached from it. But the only thing I'm, I'm getting is, is big old um, imagery and the sounds that Mark uh, yeah, sent me. Did the resulting work come out different than how you usually work? Yes and no. Like sometimes when, when I'm in an area and I feel there's just this, this thing, if I'm present in the space, I, I know what that pattern's going to look like. And and when I'm detached from that place, it's, it's me grasp at things to, to try and imagine that, that space. And yeah, again, like how you said, it throws the span into the, into the process, but it definitely does. But I think that's a... That's an interesting thing for my practice to, I guess, kind of detach myself from the space and I guess um, trying to imagine it or trying to feel the environment. I'm curious as to how just on a logistical way, I guess, the sound translates into these visuals because they are pulsating and moving with the audio and are quite mesmerizing and... Is the process automated somehow or is it sort of frame by frame that you're creating the imagery that goes through, that goes with this audio? Yeah, it's frame by frame. It's this thing that I, 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 so when I'm sitting down with recordings and things, I'm feeling how the sound moves and then I'm, I'm, I'm trying to create that frame by frame, that movement of sound because sound is not static. It's like the moves and waves and I'm trying to, I guess, give it that characteristics. Again, visually, we can't see sound, but there's a way that I, I try feel that and try recreate that. I think digital means and equipment that gives us that visuals that we can see or we can try create. I think that relationship between science, I think like back in high school, going through science and stuff, we, we learn about sound waves. We have that visual kind of thing in the textbooks and stuff. And it's like, me <laughs> I guess recreating that or like it, it brings me back to that yeah there's times back in science and all that stuff there so there's a learning aspect to it or definitely yeah since I've been doing like sound I've been researching more into sound waves and all these things around deflection and how sound travels through materials or that sort of thing yeah, I guess it has brought another thing to my art practice where I'm I've like kind of went all into. The other work that we have coming up with you is at Gus Fisher Gallery. And for those who don't know, I'm also um, an employee of Gus Fisher Gallery as a public programs officer there. So it means I have seen your upcoming work. We actually just got the files for Ongo Ongo today. And the exhibition itself, titled Turning a Page, Starting a Chapter, also features new commissions by Anna Uti and Jake Townsend. That new work has a similar approach of recording sound in the space and in the vicinity, and again, yeah, as being site-specific. But the second work that you have, Tolu Katia, it differs in that it's set to song performed by Tupo College Tuluwa students. The approach to sound is the same, but what for you is different in working with these like field recordings and working with song? Yeah, I think this takes me back to when I first started working digitally. I was working with songs that I found on YouTube. And then 
when I started learning how to extract the audio wave spectrum from songs and audio recordings, I started to figure out how to kind of differentiate the different frequencies. And Dolgatea was one of those ones that I think we created it last year. And I was trying to find things on the tongue and hymns and, um, and stuff like that. This one was different to the ways that I work with uh, field recordings, where I work with like the voices. It's, it's usually the recordings that I find of uh, Tongan songs that are predominantly like a cappella, like choir stuff, um, stuff like that. And I, I find something interesting within the human voice. And through digital means, you can you can see different nuances and stuff within the human voice. So when I'm creating these things, I find different patterns that I could create or different patterns that the voices inform the kupesi. You have a performance element of your practice as well, which, to be honest, I'm not as familiar with as your more recent digital moving image works. But it seems quite common that a lot of artists will hold video and performance hand in hand or oscillate between the two. What comes to mind off the top of my head straight away is Jeremy Liasano. Do you think there's a special relationship there between those two practices or or modes of making that move artists specifically between those two things? I've done video and performance as well in my practices. I feel like I, I still retain a bit of my performance through sound. When I was doing my performance practices, sound was a was a big component of my performance practice. And I guess I've I've just honed in or, or tapped in more into the sound aspect of my performance practice. But yeah, video and performance for myself when I was doing it, it was like documentation processes. And then all of a sudden it's like become like video video art so to speak there was this like this thing when i was um doing my performances i'll i'll just have a, a video camera record it just for ideas and stuff that i could kind of go back to but then as my performance practice went on i started finding more things that i could do within the video thing as well so there's just like this oh, for myself personally there's this thing that i could jump in and back and forth in between and there's like this middle this in-between ground of both video and performance that I was kind of dabbling in. But yeah, I guess my thing now, yeah, I, I guess I just retain that thing again with sound. I guess I just have it in a different way now. But yeah, oh, yeah, Jeremy's stuff, yeah, that guy is like next level. That guy's a man. <laughs> one, one last question for me. As of today, we're in alert level orange now, so more freedoms. Yeah, yeah. Do you have any plans to make use of the extra freedoms? Oh, yeah. I don't know. Hopefully there could be some uh, a lot more freedom with uh, public programming and all that stuff. Hey? <laughs> that would be, be cool to engage with the, the audience and stuff. But yeah, I think um, there's a lot of cool things there that could be done <laughs> with this uh, whole new level of freedom. I am excited to have openings again. Yeah, openings, big time, yeah. Oh, I can't wait for that. That's going to be cool. And yeah, artist talks and um, share and engage with ideas. I'm uh, looking forward to that. It's going to be cool. Hey, awesome. Thanks for joining me, Sione, and making the time to talk. 
looking forward to seeing your upcoming projects, both at Gus Fisher and the Mason screens with Circuit. Oh, thanks, Ravi. Thanks, Circuit. Cheers.